Hello, my name is John Barley from Right Track New Zealand Limited. Welcome to the second episode of the topic of do we understand the risk of security of our data? In this episode, we will be focusing on the three issues. One, the security of data for businesses who are now starting to work remotely. Two, the necessity to be conscious of burnout and fatigue, and what are those consequences? Three, the disaster recovery plan of data. One, prevention is first. Two, recovery of that data is second. We also wish to invite you to join our community because we discuss risks which are not often discussed in business circles. And we explore what can actually be done to prevent those risks from occurring and what are the opportunities for the business once those risks have been eliminated and or prevented from occurring. So let's carry on with our discussions with Mr. Robert Elkham from Data Center 220. Don't forget to come and join us at bit.ly backslash right track for your free copy of our monthly newsletter. I'll say that again, bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y backslash right track, spot R-I-T-E-T-R-A-C-K. So let's carry on and rejoin with Robert for the second episode. Thank you. Bye. So we got in our IT company and uh, they were offering to us a whole new system for about $15,000-$20,000. And I said, this is crazy because we're only going to be in business, I hope, for another five years. I'm not prepared to make that investment. And besides, after two to three years, our computer system would be worth absolutely zip in regards to hardware value. So I... Um, said there's got to be a simpler solution. So our IT consultant actually came back and said, okay, uh, this is what we're prepared to do, John. We're prepared to extend your warranty for another 12 months. I said, how much is that? And he says, $500. I said, done. January um, of 2000, I started asking the questions in uh, October, November, 2016. January, 2017, the motherboard went. So we got a whole new computer system um, for nothing, basically 500 bucks. But I know, and you probably also know, that there are many computer systems that are well beyond their three years, and they do need to be upgraded. But when the computer fails for some reason, then you've also got this real nasty challenge in regards to the loss of your data and also loss of productivity and the disruption to the business and the installation of the new stuff with the new software. What are your thoughts on that little scenario that I just gave to you? Right, now I'm starting to show my age now. Um, so there was a time there when Moore's Law um, took 
took precedence. And Moore's law says that every 18 months, computer processing power would double. Um, so typically, every three to five years, your PC needed to be upgraded because it was obsolete, purely because of the fact it couldn't um, cope with the new software. So the software was coming out quick, the hardware was coming out quick, and they needed to be matched. Now that we've got to the current stage where we are, um, the speed of the PCs aren't increasing as fast, but the number of simultaneous tasks they can do is. So you can do more with the same speed of the PC. If you do it, if you do more than one thing at a time, not many of us do more than one thing at a time, I hasten to add, yeah. especially us holdings. Um, so, <laughs> so a PC nowadays, and, and the way we store their data has changed as well. If you don't store your data on your PC, so there's nothing on your PC because your data is stored with the, in the cloud, as they say, or on a separate device somewhere, um, and the programs that you run are running fine on your PC, the need to replace your computer hardware, your end user's computer hardware, is not so great as it used to be just a decade ago. The computers are lasting longer if you have a quality product, if you have a commercial grade PC as opposed to a consumer grade PCs. Um, so yes, as long as they switch on, as long as they're still responsive, and as long as you don't store data on them, you've got nothing to lose. The need to replenish um, on these um, forklift upgrades isn't as great as it used to be. Okay. Okay, so what's the outcome of that? Then you're saying that you can actually now have your computer longer than three to five years um, because all the data is offline is yes. on the cloud. So what's most important isn't the PC, but the data that's on it. It's, it's got years of data. It's got years of experience in your data. If you lose your PC and your data is still safe and available, you can switch another PC on and download your data or have access to it. Um, Google Docs was the driver behind this with the online storage of data and files and software. Um, um, Dropbox followed on and then Microsoft was more or less brought to the party kicking and screaming because they were losing market share. Yeah. But to be honest with you, the Microsoft 365 accounts from a business perspective yeah. is a long way um, from where we were five, 10 years ago. Um, you, a properly set up SharePoint system, which has been organized with security in mind and backup in mind, is an invaluable tool that allows you to work remotely, keep your data safe, um, and not be too concerned where it's being accessed from. Um, as long as you, somebody's given it the proper technological thought to keep the data resilient and safe, and as the military used to say, if you don't need to access it, you shouldn't touch it. Um, and that should be enforced. People should not have access to data they do not need access to. Okay. Can I, um, one of the other things, let's go back to talking about people working remotely. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is patterns within business to actually uh, define the level of productivity and the amount of pressure that is put on people. And when we had the old system, 
where people would go to an office, they would be there for six, seven hours, right? So there would be a level of productivity in those six, seven hours. It was, it was an expectation. But now people are working from home. So they might not work all day Friday, but they sure will work maybe Saturday and Sunday. Is there any way uh, in a computer system whereby management of a company who are still sitting in an office in town somewhere can actually really uh, start to understand the number of hours that people are working by uh, watching the statistics, if there are any statistics, of, um, of the operation of computers all around New Zealand? Yes, there is. So if you're working, if you're working, it doesn't matter where you're working from, the office or, or home or even the beach, some people like to work in the beach because the nature of their job, that's where they get their creativity from, which is fine if they're working. Where you work from isn't the issue. From a management point of view, that takes you away from a time and materials and to um, results orientated. If the results are there for you, that you would yep. expect from somebody who works in an office nine till five, and you're getting those results, does it really matter when your staff is working? Now, myself, I love these systems and I've always used these systems because I would rather do eight hours of work spread over 12 hours a day. So if that means that I've lost the incentive to answer this email right now and I can go make a cup of tea or take the dog for a walk and come back and look at it, and, and I'm, I'm better relaxed, I'm, better, I'm in the frame of mind to do a better job for the, for the um, employer as long as I meet my achievements. Now, the employer is able to monitor this. Every email has a timestamp on it. Every document you open and close has a timestamp on it. There's software that can analyze this data and give you graphs of productivity when a group of people or an individual account has been accessed and used. Um, so in my case, my graph would be fairly level from the moment I woke up to the moment I go to bed. If the work comes in, I handle it. Um, whereas somebody else might just be interested in doing four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon and switching dial. But as long as the productivity is maintained, um, I don't see a problem with that. From a health perspective, the issue you get then is when people overwork, when people aren't prepared to stop working at 100% for 100% of the work of the um, waking hours. Um, so you're going to get burnout, you're going to get stressed staff. So the question should be not is, are they working? Can we see that they're working? But the question should be for the good staff, are they working too much? And do we have a responsibility for their mental health? Which is going into the arena of health and safety within a business. Yes. Um, and if you want to start going down the health and safety route, you also need to start looking at posture. Is working from a poor sofa in the home environment with a laptop on your, on your um, lap um, as good for your health as sitting in an office chair at a desk? Um, working from a dining room table will give you terrible backache and awful um, RSI in your wrists because the dining room table is too high. Um, so some of these things need to be taken into consideration for prolonged periods of working from home. Okay. 
thing. So this way of measuring the amount of usage of a computer remotely, is that a separate software package that business owners can buy or is it something that's already within the system? Um, so at the moment you'll get metrics. Microsoft 365 produces metrics. Um, it's a relatively new thing that they've started doing, but it shows your productivity levels. It shows the number of people that you've spoken to, communicated with, shows you the, the hours that you've been working on the 365 system. Remembering that 365 is your um, email, your Word, your Excel. Um, so 365 keeps those statistics and have started um, promoting them. Um, so if you set up your Office 365 account, if you're using it properly, those reports are available. It's included in the price. Um, you've then got Microsoft Teams as part of 365. Uh, that gives you secure video conferencing, gives you timestamps, it gives you shared documents, shared workplaces. If you're a large company, you can divide it up into smaller teams within the company. Um, and just as we're having a video chat at the moment and we're able to share screens and show documents to each other, um, it, it's available and we're using Zoom, but it's available in multiple um, software packages. Um, I promote the Microsoft package because Microsoft, whether you like it or not, is the, is the software of business. Um, and even if you use Apple, uh, you're still downloading and installing Microsoft Office for Word and Excel use on your Apple device. So Microsoft is pretty much the, at this stage anyway, is still the tool of choice for business. Hmm. One of the issues and challenges with, for business owners is, as you mentioned, was burnout and fatigue. And I know that when you suffer from burnout and fatigue and you work long hours, because you're not restricted to that seven to eight hours which you have in your office, in your corporate office. Um, and if you don't have enough control on that, then the probability of burnout and fatigue can actually increase. However, burnout and fatigue will also promote the probability of a hacker coming in and causing disruption to the business. So, it would be part of the management role to make certain that somehow or other they police the a level of activity of an employee who could be deemed as a workaholic. But, it, but having that workaholic can actually expose that business dramatically to um, to cybercrime? Um, you need a very large company with a very well-staffed HR department to, to manage something of this nature um, that you've just discussed. But fatigue and lack of attention um, is always, always the route to making simple mistakes. And if those simple mistakes include allowing a hacker onto your system, then yes, you, you will be um, more likely to um, have a higher risk and that risk is likely to be of higher damage because you're not reacting quick enough to it. It's all very scary, Robert, because, uh, you know, they talk about the new normal, but we're going really into uncharted waters 
to understand the risks that businesses now have in regards to not only maintenance and protection of their data, but also in regards to the possibilities of cybercrime. And as per that screen that we mentioned at the very start, the traffic's going to increase, isn't it, really? Oh, yes. The, the, um, what's known as script kiddies, uh, young adults coming out of a fairly low level of education who has the knowledge to piece together um, a, a, a item of hacking software or an item of ransom software. Um, it's, a, it's a business out there that the real criminals who make this stuff are never culpable because the peop most people who are doing the actual work are, are naive, if you like. Um, people who just buy the bits off the shelf and assemble them a bit like a jigsaw and send them into the, off into the outside world to entrap unsuspecting end users. Um, and it's getting easier to do, much easier to do. I talk to business owners about disaster recovery plans and business plans, etc. If you were to give guidance to a business owner, specifically in the SME sector, what are the principal things that a business owner should be very conscious of when designing his disaster recovery plan to protect whatever data he's got so he's not lost right don't look at it from a point of view of prevention look at it from a point of view of recovery except except that you are going to get hacked one way or another your data is going to become compromised and if you work from how do i recover from that it's much easier than working from the other end of how do i prevent it because you never know what the next um um, sphere of attack is. You never know what the next technology is that's going to compromise your data. But the one thing that will never change is how you recover from that disruption. So if you go into it with a mindset of, I am going to be targeted, I am going to be compromised, how safe can I make my data while still making it accessible by the staff that need to use it and recover from any interruptions? Um, and Going back to those three questions I asked at the beginning, that's a fine point. That's, that's where you need to start from. Have I got my backups? Can I use, do I have access to them? And, and do they work? Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's the area you need to come from. I am going to get attacked. How do I recover from it when I do? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, so in your new role as general manager, are people able to contact you and talk to you about the security of their uh, data systems and how they can overcome the particular issues? And if they, and if they are, how do they contact you? Where do they, where do they get hold of you? I'm only too welcome to assist people. Uh, my entire career in, here in New Zealand um, has been built on, on support. Um, without financial gain sometimes. Now, as general manager of Data Center 220, I have a lot of clients in my data center who can assist end users. And I'm only too happy to listen to their concerns and point them in the direction of the correct person who can help. Now, as I said before, that's 
not uh, the general manager of a data center or the staff of a data center. We're here to make sure our systems are maintained um, for the uh, IT companies who do support end users. And this, this is where I'm happy to assist. We have in our data center um, 81 internet service providers. We have in our data center a whole host of data backup services. And I'm only too happy to listen to an end user's requirements and then um, advise them who can best assist them with their needs. Um, but yes, there, there's an awful lot of IT support companies out there. Um, from the one that I used to work with to NSP to uh, the list just goes on. Um, um, I could I could start listing them, but we'd be here all day. That's um, that's a very political, um, uh, non-biased response, which is really really cool. So, <laughs> well done. Uh, so. Um, Robert, as per normal, you know, your, the amount of information that you've given has been absolutely superb. I think it's uh, really given clarity to those people that will listen and um, really the risk starts at the person who is in control of that keyboard sitting in front of the screen. And, uh, and it doesn't matter whether you have insurance for cybercrime or not. Uh, the, that insurance is purely and simply there to uh, provide indemnity in the event that your uh, own systems fail. But primarily, you've got to make certain your systems do fail. No, oh, sorry, make certain your systems don't fail. Um. <laughs> well, go, as I say, assume that they will and make sure that you can recover. But insurance is there to protect you financially uh, for a short period of time. It's not there to recover your data and ensure that you can continue um, um, in, a in a productive manner every time. Sometimes these things are irreversible um, if you don't have suitable backups, if you don't have backups you can recover from. Um, and uh, one point crossed my mind then, how many people are trained in first aid? How often do you send somebody in the office in a first aid training course just in case somebody in the office injures themselves. Now, if you're prepared to do it for the health of your people, how many people in the office is trained to assist with the IT? The simple stuff, is this a good website? Is this a good person? Is this how I should be paying this money? Um, so yeah, you, you really should have the IT person in the company, the go-to person who can do first aid, who can do triage for your computer. Very good point. It's a very, very good point. Mind you, a lot of people are doing their first aid course because they're told to do their first aid course because it's a requirement of health and safety. Um, which I don't think that applies to the IT world. Yes. Which brings us back to the previous question of who's responsible and if a senior manager decides that there should be a first aid responder for your IT systems, he can tell them as well. Courses are inexpensive. Um, and initial triage does not have to be expensive. Yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely cool. Robert, thank you very, very much. And, uh, and no doubt we will talk again soon on some other subject or talk to one another for a cup of coffee. But um, thank you. Thank you very much.
You're most welcome. Hopefully I've not wasted yours or anyone else's time. And just remember, if you do need a data center, we are the New Zealand's most interconnected data center. So we're the first choice. So people, so that's a very good point. People can go to their IT, uh, IT suppliers and they can say, I want to use data center 220. Yes, they can. They can say, I'd like you to manage my equipment and I'd like my equipment located in data center 220. That would be ideal. Can I, something just, some other little questions just popped up into my head. Who actually owns those boxes behind you? So that's our investment. So those um, cages, they're 42U high, um, which means they can take um, 42U computers or servers. Um, and then we provide power to them. So there's two power feeds, an A and a B feed. Uh, the power feeds are fed by two separate independent battery feeds and the batteries are fed by the mains. And if the mains fails, there's two gen sets to power them. So that's what's known as 2N. Um, some of our systems at the moment are N or N plus one, but we're on a huge, huge thrust to make the data 2N throughout. Um, that's a lot of work which we are currently embarking upon. Um, and it's something impressive to see when you see a 500 kilowatt gen set being lifted from Queen Street and put through the second um, story of a 12 story building. Um, so yeah, next time we do it, I'll let you know and you can come watch the disruption yeah. calls to the so, so you actually own those cages, you own the computer system, the backup systems within there. And yeah. we, we own the computer cages and we own the IT, uh, the, the power and the cooling facilities to keep our clients' IT equipment going in the event of an um, outage, be that power or something else. Um, so we have enough diesel on site to keep the um, generators going for 31 hours. Then we have three separate contracts with fuel providers um, who can top the tanks up um, once every 24 hours. Um, so everything's built in with a redundancy. Um, and even, even in the event of, of the city having no power for extended periods of time, which has happened in the past, uh, this data center would not suffer from that. And we can't because some of the people who host equipment in our data center, for example, all of the digital communications for the emergency services are come out of our data center via one of their clients. Um, the controllers for some of the power grid are hosted in our data center. And if we go dark, they can no longer control the power grid. Um, we have some really key um, um, equipment in the data center that's responsible for a lot of the infrastructure, including the internet, throughout the country. So somebody's done a pretty good thorough risk management role <laughs> to, to make certain that it's all going to be fail safe. Yes, which, and we test it monthly. Just as I suggested people should test their backups monthly, we test our um, uh, generation uh, power generation um, um, on a regular basis as well. And what that means is that once we've notified our clients we're doing a test, one morning we go in and we pull the breakers on the mains and we make sure that nobody's equipment fails. And trust me, that's a nail biting moment. When you pull the breaker on your mains power feed, 
and you've got such a high level of responsibility on behalf of your clients and the customers that they support, making sure that the generators come in, that the batteries are powered, the batteries don't run out of power before the generators kick in, that the cooling kicks, comes back in. Um, that, that can be a nail bite in 20 minutes. Which raises another interesting question, and you've mentioned it a few times, your clients are the IT companies, and it's your, but it's your clients who actually have the hardware in those cages. They own the hardware. So you're just a facility for the operation of that hardware uh, for, uh, for safety purposes. Yes, for security, resilience, um, um, and, and um, cost. Okay, here's a question for you. You're on the 12th floor of 122 Queen Street in a reasonably old building built around 1960s. What happens in the event of an earthquake? Okay, so our building is a very robust building. Um, according to the, I think it's the EQC, is it? We're 118%. So anybody who's 80% um, is A+. Plus. So we, we're at the very top end of the scale for earthquake resilience. Um, and we have sensors on everything. The, the other question, not only earthquake, but um, we're fairly close to the waterfront um, and the data centers in it. So water, for example, flooding through either leaks in the building or, or heaven forbid, a huge wave that might come through. Um, so we have sensors everywhere um, and our fire suppression, our fire suppression is something to behold. Um, so yeah, all of these things that we maintain, we maintain to a very high standard and there's so many checks um, and tests that go on to ensure that we don't let our um, clients down. Okay, volcanic eruption. And, and Auckland shut down and we've got a lava flow coming down Queen Street. We might have slightly bigger problems to worry about than will my internet work in the morning. Um, <laughs> but uh, having said that, we are just one pop of many. So the ISPs, for example, I mentioned some of them before, which are advertised on our website, Voyager, Spark, um, they won't rely on one data center. They will have a number of data centers up and down the country. Um, you have to remember that the internet was designed for um, uh, conflict. It was designed for disruption and it was designed to carry on going in, even in the most severe um, of circumstances. Um, so the internet would be safe. Uh, the people who host in their data center will have redundant parts. So they will have backups from data, they'll have data center replication. So what they have in our data center, they'll have in another data center. Um, and that's why we are um, so well renowned. We have a worldwide reputation um, because in New Zealand, uh, as I said before, we're the most interconnected data center, but it's where we connect to that's important that made us popular in the first place. So Merrill Drive, Sky Tower, um, out to the Southern Cross Cable. Um, we have all the major, major interconnects, all the major equipment that's required by, by our customers. And so, the information is that sent down through 
um, uh, what do you call it, fiber? Fiber, yes. So we're lit with three fibers, um, which is unusual for a data center. Uh, so we have three separate suppliers and we have three separate um, feeds into the building and each of those feeds have redundant parts. Uh, so all the big fiber providers are here. So you've got Chorus, uh, you've got Vector, you've got Cordia, you've got Vital, which used to be called CityLink. All of these companies own their own fiber up and down the country um, and they all terminate in data center 220. Well, uh, that's wrong. They don't terminate here. They have a node here. Wow. That's quite a valuable asset for the business community here in New Zealand because it sounds to me as though it's the real hub of everything that of essential services um, that basically keeps New Zealand humming. Yes, yes. You, you, people get upset they can't watch Netflix in the evening. Um, so, <laughs> and, and, and this is valid because during the COVID situation, when everybody um, was home, working from home, the internet usage went up. So Chorus has got capacity for 3 point terabits of data per second. That's a vast number. And we come close to maxing it out. We exceeded 3 terabytes, um, ter terabytes, terabits, terabits yeah. per second. Um, and during lockdown, because we're an essential service, so I was here on site um, for the entire period. Um, we had a limited staff, myself and my chief engineer were here, uh, facilities manager was here. Um, and we had people coming in and out of the data center where they had to increase the capacity for their networks to, to take account of the added demand through the internet. Um, so yes, it was, um, it was, an eye-opener just to see how much traffic actually comes through this one site. Hmm. And that raises a whole number of other issues, doesn't it? Because yeah, it basically... Yeah, that's what I can help you with. But that's probably the subject for another meeting. Yeah, no, but thank you ever so much, and we'll catch up soon. You're welcome, John. Thank Have you. a good evening. Same to you. Bye. Thank you for joining us at Right Track and the latest podcast discussing with Mr. Robert Elkham the subject of security of our data. Once again, if you wish to be part of our community to understand and comprehend the different risks that you have in business, please, please contact us at john at righttrack.co.nz or phone john on 027-289-3162 or 09-239-3830. And if you wish to receive a monthly newsletter from Right Track, please go to bit.ly backslash Right Track. That's what B-I-T stop L-Y backslash Right Track, R-I-T-E-T-R-A-C-K. Thank you for your time and look forward to meeting with you again soon. Bye.